My video didn't work today on my laptop. Life. So I guess I got to be in person today. I had to leave my studio. Uh, I'm going to talk about building a practice. I think it's important if you're new to Buddhism to understand what a practice is and how to build it. So I'll share some insights that I gained when I built my practice. So this was about 1978, you know, and uh, I decided I needed a religion. So I bought a book by Houston Smith called World Religions. And there was a chapter on Buddhism. And I read that chapter on Buddhism. And I said, I want to become a Buddhist. So I wasn't divinely inspired at all. It was page 34 that inspired me. And uh, I really didn't know how to start because I didn't know anybody who was a Buddhist. I didn't know anybody who meditated. Um, I didn't know anybody that read that book except for me. So I went to the bookstore, Bodhi Tree Bookstore, back in the good old days, and found a book by a guy who went to, I think he was a Danish or Swedish guy, and he went to a Zen monastery someplace in Asia. And this was his uh, account of that, his diary, if you will. And I thought, wow, this is really cool. You know, what he experienced and how he experienced it. And I was able to understand that because it wasn't technically difficult. There wasn't a lot of Dharma or sutras or explanations. It was just how he felt about it, what he experienced, what he did. And it was a very positive experience to him. So I found another book by another guy that went to a different monastery and I read his story. And I started to get a little familiar now with how it feels in a vicarious way to go to a, a Zen monastery and sit and meditate and, and hear the teacher talk and the sutras and stuff like that. So then I bought a book on the sutras. It was some basic sutras, Pali, didn't understand it at all. I said, okay, this isn't going to work if I can't understand the sutras. So then I bought another book on the commentaries of the sutras, explaining what they meant. I got that. Okay, so I, it was an odd, it was an odd course for me to get there. I, I remember reading Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. And I read the whole thing and really missed out on all the Western philosophy. So then I bought a book on how to read Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, and I understood much more. So that's sort of my arc, if you will, on coming to Buddhism. And then I decided, well, I really should not just intellectually understand it, but I should actually experience it. Because oftentimes the experience is different than what you think it's going to be. So I found this place. This was like 1979. And, and we had ads in the yellow pages. Remember the yellow pages? We had ads in the yellow pages. And they said free meditation instruction on Wednesday nights. All are welcome. So I said, okay, I'm going to do it. And, and I found parking. It was cold and rainy. I found parking much easier then than it is now. And I came in here and it was freezing. They didn't turn on the heat. I'm thinking to myself, what's wrong with these people? Are they trying to save money? Not realizing that part of the 
excitement of meditation is feeling the environment personally. So I sat down on a cushion. We had the tatami mat. We had the zafu. And, and I go, okay. Now they said, this is what you need to do. Extensive instructions. You need to sit there. We're going to sit quietly for 15 minutes, and then there's a five-minute break. I'm going to sit quietly for 15 minutes, there's a five-minute break. I'm going to sit for 15 minutes, there'll be a five-minute break. And then Shinzen will come down and give a Dharma talk. Now I'm thinking, Shinzen? Dharma talk? You know, I that didn't click at the time. So I sat there, and I just suffered for three periods of meditation. Knees hurt, back hurt, mind was raging. Why am I here? There must be something else I could do with my time. And then finally the gong rang and Shinzen came down. Okay, now Shinzen was a, a Jewish guy from LA who was studying at UCLA and he was studying Japanese culture and language. And he decided to go to Japan to get up close and personal with what he's studying. And he ended up getting ordained as a Shingon monk. And then he came back to the States and he moved in here. Reverend Karuna said, yeah, you can, you can stay here. You can live here. So he had, he had a room here, you know? And so that was my first introduction to a Buddhist teacher was this Jewish guy from LA who went to Japan. Okay. So now he's going to give a Dharma talk. And he's talking about stuff, and I'm going, wow. I didn't understand most of what he said, but he said it in a way that led me to believe I could understand it if I came back a second time and kept meditating. So I listened carefully. I sort of went over what he had to say, and then I went and found another book that sort of dealt with what he was talking about because he was very much a Mahayana monk at the time. He later became a Vipassana guy. But at the time, he was Mahayana and Zen. And, and that's how it started. So, so I would recommend if somebody wants to learn about Buddhism, to get a book first, you know. And there's so many really good books now that weren't available when I started. And they're simple and understandable, and there's examples, and there's websites connected to them, and there's YouTube channels, and there's all sorts of places to start just to get the feeling of what Buddhism is as a practice. And then the second part is to actually practice, to actually meditate. And so I was told that it's probably good if you could meditate maybe 15 minutes a day. And you could pick the morning or the evening, depending if you slept in or got to bed early. And then as that became more comfortable, then it's 15 minutes in the morning and 15 minutes in the evening. So your meditation practice becomes bookends to your day. And it's sort of a nice way to start the day. It's a quiet way. Your, your mind is pretty clear. It hasn't been cluttered with all the events of the day. And then in the evening, it's sort of nice just to let all that stuff go. You know, all the trials and tribulations of making a living or just living and, and sort of pushing that aside for a while and just letting your meditation happen. Now, if you're going to have a meditation practice, you got to figure out what kind of meditation you're going to do. So there are two kinds of Buddhist meditation. 
there's samatha meditation, which is tranquility meditation, and there's vipassana meditation, which is insight meditation. And there were four kinds of vipassana, four kinds of insight, and 40 kinds of samatha meditation. And if, if you're wondering, the Buddha did both. He started out with samatha meditation, tranquility meditation, and the, and the yogis and teachers of India taught him how to do that. And as the story goes, he was fantastic. He soon became better than his teacher. And on a couple of occasions, his teacher said, would you take over my students for me? Because you're so much better than I am. And he said, no, 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 I, I haven't found it yet. This isn't exactly what I'm looking for yet. So, but thank you for the opportunity. And then he would go find another teacher and he'd go find another teacher. And then finally, he came to a place in his practice where he decided to do insight meditation. Now, insight meditation is something that people do who want to be on the fast track to nirvana, the fast track to nirvana. And it said all Buddhas at one time or another practice insight meditation in order to achieve nirvana. Okay, so it's it's got a it's got a good history. It's a good recommendation. I have done both. I prefer samatha meditation. I prefer tranquility, bliss, happiness, all those good things. Man, those are great. Inside meditation for me personally was a little too jarring. You know, I, I, you get to this sort of place where you start to see things that maybe you don't want to see, because now you have this sort of clarity and insight into the true nature of your life. And you go, should I do Thorazine or should I do Samatha meditation? What would be a good antidote for my reality that has just shifted? Because the world is cruel. You know, it's, it's a tough world out there. And the whole idea is to be in the world and not have the world affect you in a negative way. So I have found that doing samatha meditation allows me to, to be tranquil and peaceful in the midst of the chaos of Los Angeles, California. That this place is a trip. And ever since the pandemic ended, it's gotten worse. And I'm thinking... Sanity is at such a low place right now that most people are insane. And so our meditation practice and our study of Buddhism allows us to have a certain clarity and tranquility and be able to go out into the world and not have it affect us in a negative way. Wow, cool. So there I am meditating, went from insight to tranquility, insight and back to tranquility and now i'm starting to gain some gain a foothold in the practice of buddhism this i have to warn you about the practice of buddhism that you can never go back you're stuck once you start on the path of buddhism you can't forget what you learned you can only go forward you can't even stay where you are because everything is always changing and becoming different. There's no place to stand. You can only go forward. So if you wish you could go back to your original ignorance, 
and not have the world affect you the way it is now. It's just a wish, words of warning. But what you gain if you stay on the path is a certain confidence that this practice has proven to be true to you. Now that is amazing because a hundred people can come up to you and say, this is true. You go, well, maybe. But in your apartment late one night while you were meditating, it became true to you. And nobody can convince you otherwise. How cool is that? Validation. No faith required. People ask about faith in Buddhism. And there are certain forms of Buddhism that requires faith. But I have found in my practice of Buddhism that you only need faith during the first step. The first step is you have faith that there may be a practice, there may be a philosophy, there may be a religion that will give you what you're looking for. That's the faith necessary to take the first step. When you finally take the second step, that faith magically transforms into confidence. And now you know for sure that that's the truth, your truth, the truth to you. Can you convince your family? No. My, I, I've been meditating over 30 years. My family thinks it's a little odd, you know. So you're not going to take a whole lot of people with you, you know, along your journey. It may just be you or a close friend until they find something else. So you have to be ready for that as well. Now, what do you need? You need to have a place to meditate. And it's often recommended in your apartment or house to set aside just a little space, maybe a corner. And that's where your cushion is, maybe a picture of your guru or your teacher or the Buddha or Kuan Yin Bodhisattva, all sorts of stuff. Okay, that's there. And you, if you want a candle that smells nice, that's good too. Or maybe a little incense bowl for some incense, that's good. And, th and that's your sort of meditation space. So you want to make that sort of pure and just for meditation. Okay, so you do that. And then you're practicing and practicing. And then you say, I wonder if there are any other people in the world who are practicing meditation. Is it just me? Well, perhaps there are other people out there. So then you need to find other people. They can be your sangha. Sangha usually means monks and nuns, but you can also be lay people too. This is your sangha. These are, this is your group. This is when you come together occasionally to meditate together. But 90% of the time, your meditation is just going to be you. So don't get too attached to having a bunch of people around you meditating with you and encouraging you and supporting you. Because most of the time, you're not, they got stuff to do and it's just you in your corner lighting your incense another night, you know. But that's good. That's how it's supposed to be because your meditation is for you. It's not for anybody else. Though when you meditate and do it well, now that's an odd thing to say because there's no right or wrong way to meditate. But it, it affects other people as well because you have now allowed yourself to be transformed in a small way that transforms other people around you. Your kindness, your generosity, maybe your happiness. You know, every time I go to the grocery store, I see no happy people. They're all gone. They all went someplace. All I see are serious people. How much is this muffin? It's too much. Okay, you know. So it's just like it's for you and your kindness and generosity can affect other people as well. So that's cool. 
So now you've got your space. Now you found a group that you can meditate with occasionally. And now, now the big deal is to maybe once or twice a year, go on retreat. Sign up for a retreat. And they have some that are free and they have some that are really expensive. And they have some that just travel all over the world. And so you pick the one that you think is good. Uh, there's, I think in North Fork, which is in California, it, it's a Vipassana treat, a retreat, Goenka Vipassana. And the money you give to the retreat goes to the next person who's going to show up. So you're paying forward, which is really a cool idea. So you get to meditate for free. And then if you want to leave money for the next person, you leave money for the next person. So now you got maybe 10 days. I started with three days. That was about all I could take. But 10 days is good, you know? And what, what you do is you sort of get into a place where you're only going to meditate and listen to Dharma. There's like no cell phones, which will drive a lot of people crazy. There's like no TV. There's no YouTube channel. There's just you and other people. And they, they, they warn you, don't have eye contact with people. Because that's when the drama starts. You have eye contact with people and you go, I wonder what kind of girl that she is. And then it starts, the stories start in your head. Or if you're, what kind of guy that is? He looks like he's successful. I'd like to meet him after the retreat. No, no, no. You don't talk to anybody. You don't look at anybody. The idea is to go inside, not outside, to go inside. Who am I? That's the big question. Who am I? And when you start looking, you're going to be surprised what you find. And I have found there is no event that you are not an event, even though you are somebody and think you're somebody and people relate to you as somebody, you are a process, ever-changing, no core, no essence. Wow. They say in Buddhism, Zen Buddhism, empty of independent existence. And you, when, once you find that, you realize that you are interconnected and connected with everything and everyone all the time. You, it's never about you. It's always about we. We did this and we did that. And it was good or it was bad, but you never can take credit for either one of those because you were one of the contributing factors that made that happen, but there were 999 other factors that were necessary for it to happen. And you were just one. You were the important one because it was about you who actually doesn't exist in the way you think you do. And this meditation retreat can lead you to a really cool place of just lifting the burden of being who you are for 10 days or three days and just being the process. I sit, I eat, I sleep, I sit, I eat, I sleep, I listen to a Dharma talk. Who's listening to the Dharma talk? I don't know, but it's happening. Cool. This is now you come back and you go back into that world and it's a little more transparent than it was before. It's not solid and unchanging. 
you sort of see the structures underneath. And you go, wow. Shinzen always used to say, and this just tripped me out when I first heard it, he would point to the wall and say, you know what, that wall is transparent. I'm going, what the hell is he talking about? That's not transparent. He says, that wall is transparent. That wall is a concept. You're seeing a concept. It doesn't exist in the way you see it. You're seeing the word. I see the word wall, but what is it really? Form, sensation, perception, consciousness. What is that wall really? So when you get into your Buddhist practice, and you start challenging yourself, which doesn't exist in the way you think it does, you start to become a little more kind because you realize that everyone has very strong delusions about everything. And now you're starting to see through them. So you can't go up to people and say, no, no, that wall's transparent. You can't do that because you're going to freak them out. They haven't done your practice. They don't understand. So you go, isn't that a nice wall? I like to paint. It looks good. Then they feel comfortable. And if you go up to somebody and say you're a Buddhist and they don't know anything about Buddhism, it's not going to work. Better to say you're a meditator. What do you do? I meditate. They're not going to know what that is either, unless they meditate. But it sounds a, a, a little less challenging to be a meditator than a Buddhist, you know. And all the, the work I've done out there, community service, the first thing they do when you get into an institution, like I was a police chaplain for seven years in Garden Grove, the police officers when I'm in the car doing ride along, would always say, what's Buddhism? I'm thinking, well, we got 12 hours together in the car. I'll just start talking. And about 10 minutes into my talk, I just shut up because I looked at his face and he's going, what the hell is this guy talking about? You know, he's a Presbyterian. He doesn't know about Buddhism. And he didn't want to know about Buddhism. He just wanted to make conversation. So I asked him, what kind of walls do you have at your house? He said, oh, we're really nice. They're painted gray. And my wife just bought some new drapes. Those are the kind of conversations that we have as we're practicing Buddhism, unless somebody is sincerely interested. Okay. Now, it's best to look at your practice as never ending, that you'll never come to the end game of your practice. Because even the Buddha, if you read the Parinirvana Sutta, in his last breaths, went into the fourth jhana, fourth jhana, which is the deepest kind of concentration you can do. There's no pain. There's no suffering. There's no this. There's no that. And he died in that fourth jhana. So he, he meditated. Even after he achieved nirvana, he still meditated. So all of us here, we haven't achieved nirvana. So it shouldn't be a great surprise to us that we're going to have to meditate for the rest of our life. And then if you're really good at meditating in this lifetime, you get to do it again in the next lifetime. And the next, and the next. And then one day you will achieve 
nirvana. Wow, how cool is that? Now, what is nirvana? The Buddha never talked about it. He sort of hinted at it. But I'll give you my definition of enlightenment and my definition of nirvana. And enlightenment comes from tranquility meditation. And nirvana comes from insight meditation. According to me, that's my disclaimer. Tranquility meditation, enlightenment, the direct experience of the interconnectedness and interdependence of all phenomena. That's enlightenment, according to me. Nirvana, characteristics of nirvana, they are the end of suffering while you're alive, the end of karma and the end of all future rebirths. Now, the difference between rebirth and reincarnation is reincarnation requires a soul and rebirth requires karmic energy, which is reborn time and time again. And when you achieve nirvana, you end your karma and then there is nothing left to be reborn. So you go into this unborn, undying state of existence and non-existence at exactly the same time, and it's really a hard sell. Hey, let's all not exist together. That doesn't sound like any fun. We need to exist so we can have a good time. Uh, but what's a good time? And who's having it? That's the question. And so you never want to really go there in a serious way. You're just going to go, yeah, maybe one day nirvana. But if I get enlightenment, I'll have a unique perspective on the world. And you can get enlightenment first and nirvana second. And you can even go to a heaven called Pure Land. They have a whole Buddhist tradition called Pure Land. And it is so cool. They feel that you really can't achieve nirvana by yourself. It's too hard. The, the way has been lost. And you have to have faith, vow, and devotion in order to go into pure land. And once you're in pure land, everything speaks to Dharma. The babbling brook speaks to Dharma. The rabbit over there speaks to Dharma. The birds flying overhead speak the Dharma. Guaranteed to achieve nirvana once you make it to the pure land. So, is that a popular form of Buddhism? In Asia, it's the most popular. And they're chanting all the time. They're chanting all the time. So, that Amitabha Buddha, the Buddha of Pure Land, will come down and personally escort you. And then you can achieve your nirvana there. Which, you know, after years and years of meditation and hundreds of retreats, Pure land may sound pretty damn good. <laughs> I'm tired of meditating. Let me just chant and go to heaven. That might be good. So the practice of Buddhism leads in a unique and wonderful personal way to awareness and tranquility. And those two combined lead you to kindness, generosity, and wisdom which are the results of your Buddhist practice.